Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. This week's our last show of 2017, and we want to do something a little different. My co-hosts and I are going to run down what we think are the five biggest legal stories of the year. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. So this is it for the year. Yeah, I was torn. I mean, we're we're taking a breather on the last week of the year, so I was torn between singing Old Angsine or doing a Christmas carol thing. Could you do both? I, I don't know. I don't want to think about it. Really. I would vote for both. Yeah. If uh, it was available. Yeah. But like you said, Amber, we're going to be... We're going to be talking about the biggest news story, the biggest legal news stories of the year. We're actually talking about things that are tied for the second biggest legal stories, uh, news stories of the year, just because the biggest story rocked the legal community was the launching of the Pro Se podcast. Very obvious. Uh, I mean, clearly, it's really made waves. Everyone knows about it. Everyone's <laughs> talking about it. Uh, and it's, I mean, we're, we're impartial. We're not going to, like, spend a whole segment talking about... Uh, you know, all the great moments of the Pro Se podcast. I mean, but, if any of yeah. our listeners wanted to send emails demanding that we do a whole show just talking about ourselves, I think we'd be up for it. We yeah. did already do a clip show. That's true. So. <laughs> That's true. So it wouldn't be outside the realm of Two in the span of four weeks would be, would be <laughs> right. poor form, I maybe, think. Maybe too but, much. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about some some things that not new stories, but but we won't do a clip show. We'll, we'll talk right. about the biggest stories of the year. Yeah. And one thing I want our listeners to know right up top these are in no order. It's not like we didn't rank them, but we just thought there were five standout things that deserve some more conversation as we look back at this year. Right. So I think the first one we want to talk about, Alex, you are going to tee us up there. Yeah. We're, this, is a, this is a podcast about the biggest legal news stories, um, but the biggest story of the year of any phylum uh, of news, you couldn't really open a newspaper or turn on the TV without hearing about some sort of sexual misconduct against a man uh, in a position of power, be right. he in you know, the media or politics um, or other stuff like that. We talked about it as recently as one show ago, and uh, it, didn't get, it didn't get less newsy in a week. Um, so patient zero for a lot of this stuff were the allegations against Harvey Weinstein, the mm-hmm. Hollywood mogul um, who was uh, revealed by various news stories to have allegedly preyed upon many women over the years uh, in the industry, using his position of power to, uh, you know, curry sexual favors from them, all kinds of very unpleasant stuff. Right. And it didn't take long for that to arrive uh, at some legal entanglement. And we talked about this uh, with Strickler a couple shows ago when Mm -hmm. it was revealed that Weinstein had enlisted the services of superstar litigator David Boies. And for people who don't remember, this is where it starts to get really crazy because Boies was not only his attorney, but he was allegedly working to broker this deal to have some former Mossad agents right. try to shut down. Israeli special forces. Yeah, yeah. These, these sexual assault allegations. Yeah. yeah, so in case you forgot, the, uh, the, the, the first like dam breaking of the Weinstein stuff was in the New York Times story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was then later reported in a different story that Boys was very close to this operation um, by you know hiring these <laughs> this this company was it Black Cube I think it was called I think so it was some comically villainous something like name. that that had basically been hounding the the would be Weinstein accusers including actress Rose McGowan basically looking to silence them before they went to the Times and as Amber noted um, 
he was doing that work for Weinstein, but the only problem was Boys uh, at that time was also uh, sort of on, I don't know if he's on, on retainer, he was working for the Times right. for various legal matters. The Times did not know this. The Times did not, not know that their attorney was attempting to subvert one of their own stories. It's a, it, it certainly created an interesting dynamic, which we talked with Andrew about at length, um, but that was just one of many, many crazy things that happened. It created sort of... Um, I don't know. I mean, it was. It seems like something that you would teach in like a law school class about like about right. about, about about ethical uh, uh, malfeasance. It sounds like a really tricky final exam question. Yeah, um, uh, but that's not the only thing that ties into this broader narrative of these sexual harassment allegations. We also had a story we talked about just last week. Right. It touched big law, and now it's starting to touch the judiciary. Yeah, that's right. Um, and there's there's all kinds of other stuff, too. In the interest of time here, we're, we're playing the hits for you. Um, we talked just last week about Ninth Circuit Judge Alex Kaczynski, who uh, it was alleged to have carried on extremely inappropriate uh, sexual conversations with many of his clerks over the past several years. Mm -hmm. And that all came to a boil, you know, uh, in some public reporting. And then it all moved very quickly. The court opened an inquiry. And actually, just shortly after we released our podcast last week, uh, he resigned uh, from the bench. Um, and, so sometimes yeah. when the news happens, and it's always evolving for us, so we do run up against this sometimes where we release a podcast and then some things happen shortly thereafter. And usually, usually I'm like, oh no, we missed some next big thing. This was the one rare time where I was like, yes, this guy right. resigned. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. yeah. And I think these two cases are really interesting, or these two um, stories are very interesting just because, you know, it's not just about, you know, the people who prey upon these women, like, Kaczynski or people who have done more nefarious stuff than Kaczynski is alleged to have done. Um, the boys story sort of really brings in the fact that like, it's not just about the perpetrators that when it at, at its basest, ugliest element, like there is a, there is like a very unsavory, like legal structure that sure. can embolden and enable in, in, and enable stuff like this. And it's very unpleasant. Um, and I know Amber, you've often it talked is. about how sad it is and it's, it's definitely sad that stuff like that happens, but if we can take, any kind of solace away from it. I mean, the whole point of it was that uh, this whole year has been something of a, of a reckoning. Yeah, I mean, I have found it very um, troubling to talk about these things, especially since we've done it over and over again on this show. But I think um, the fact that they're all coming to light and there's real resolution coming out of some of these stories is a really positive development. Absolutely. The next big legal news story of 2017 was the judiciary, or more specifically, the many, many vacant seats that yeah. are on the judiciary. Which mm -hmm. sounds, on the face of it, like it's not an exciting story, but we actually had a lot of fireworks with a lot of judicial picks. Yeah, year. and you can, I mean, it's, you know, it's not the sexiest thing, but it's it's people who... I said this to you earlier. They can literally tell anyone to stop doing anything. So it's it, and they're there for life. So right. are you saying you know, that Neil Gorsuch <laughs> isn't sexy? I find that. I mean, that's like really offensive. You're jumping ahead. <laughs> well, Sorry. Well, <laughs> let's talk about Gorsuch right up top. Yeah, there you go. So the biggest, the biggest right. of all of these vacancies was um, the seat left open by Justice Antonin Scalia, who died in February of 2016. Um, we then spent the next 14 months <laughs> with yeah. uh, Merrick Garland uh, nominated to replace him. Republicans refused a vote on on that during Obama's last year, uh, and 
left the seat open for President Trump to fill. So President Trump nominates 10th Circuit Judge Neil Gorsuch. Yeah. He's confirmed in April, and he began this year to start to, we sort of got, started to get an idea of what he, of what he is, what he's going to be That's on the a bench. big news story in any year, new Supreme Court justice. Right, right. Yeah. And we had sort of a, a light rollout where he heard just a few things mm-hmm. at the end of one term, mm-hmm. and he's really starting to kick in this term, right. the current so, term. So he was replacing Scalia, who everyone knows was, uh, you know, a textualist, an originalist. He was this very conservative guy. Gorsuch was billed as Scalia version 2.0. And, right. and from what we've seen thus far, totally accurately. He yeah. might even be more conservative. Mm-hmm. So we can go through some of the stuff that, that that's happened this year with Gorsuch on the bench. He dissented from a ruling that said same-sex parents uh, have the right to have both of their names on birth certificates. He dissented from a decision. Um, the court turned down um, a case that would have reviewed California's concealed carry rules. Yeah. He said they should have taken it. Um, he said that that the, the so-called travel ban, the Muslim ban that, that President Trump uh, put in place and then went through the courts, he said that that, that should have gone into effect immediately and, and without any restrictions whatsoever. Um, and we've got his budding bromance with Clarence Thomas, which everybody's right. yeah. keeping an eye on. Yeah. And and perhaps most notably, uh, he sort of slightly dissented from Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in Trinity Lutheran, which mm-hmm. was the uh, a big religious freedom case, saying that he would have gone even further yeah, than the already that. conservative ruling. So he's really shown that 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 you know that 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 is who he is. And um, so it'll be interesting to see to see it going forward as he sort of develops his you know his his resume on the court. Fleshing out the lower ranks of the judiciary was also also proved adventurous though, right. which we've talked <clears throat> about quite a bit. Well, we um, set up but... top that that you know many many open seats, and it is an unusually large right. set of vacancies that Trump has, which gives him the ability to sort of an unusual opportunity to to shape the judiciary. Some numbers here. Um, he came in with 120 open seats. Mm-hmm. How does that compare? For comparison, Obama came in with about 40. Yeah. So it's... So it's huge. It's three times as many as, as Obama came in with. It's the most open seats of any president in the last three decades. Um, and as of today, he he has 143 open seats. So it's been sort of this like back and forth thing, right? Like it's it's you know the the opening of the Trump administration, I think objectively by anyone's standards, has been a little bumpy. Yeah, and the judicial nominees at times have been one of the really bright spots that, you know. Sure. I mean, he loves to say in speeches how important it was to him to have Gorsuch on the bench. Yeah, I mean, yes. pointed to some of these other people as well. That was a campaign promise that, you know, vote for me. We we need to keep that seat. Yep. So he's been getting conservative judges nominated and getting them approved. He, mm-hmm. he uh, He's had 19 judges confirmed already. Um, and that includes 12 appellate court judges. So yeah. it's been going well. No small feat. On the other hand... <laughs> Yeah, there's always another hand. Yeah. Um, his nominees have sort of raised eyebrows at times. This process has been a little jumpy. Uh, sure. He, he so got a little sideways here from time. We've to talked time. about this on the pod. A we bit, have. So so four of Trump's picks uh, got this not qualified rating from the ABA, which is extremely rare. Mm-hmm. They had only issued two of them in the previous several decades, mm-hmm. right? And Trump has four. So, and in just the past two weeks, 
we've seen some of them really go down. Yeah. Um, there was Brett Talley, who was, you know, didn't disclose his conflict of interest with the White House. Hunting ghosts in his free time. <laughs> it, was very, it was very, very rough. And this, for anybody who doesn't remember him, is the judicial pick who had very little experience. Yeah, correct. correct. So well, and we're, and we're going we're to get to more of that in a second. Okay. And there was another guy who uh, made really incendiary comments about gay people, that that came out, and then he also, uh, the White House said they wouldn't be pushing for him anymore. Mm-hmm. And then this last week, we had the very, very strange case of Matthew Peterson, (laughs) who was nominated for a district court job, and he had his Senate hearing, and there was just a humiliating moment where he couldn't answer very, very basic questions about civil procedure. Um, Well, as a trial judge, you're obviously going to have witnesses. (laughs) Can you tell me what the uh, Dobert standard is? Uh, Senator Kennedy, I, I don't have that uh, readily at, uh, at my disposal, uh, but I would be happy to take a, a closer look at that. Okay. That, that, that is not something that I've had to... <laughs> closer uh, look. Um, <laughs> oh, guys, I mean... He, As I pointed out to Bill, that's a that's a Republican senator, by the way, Kennedy right. from yeah, Louisiana. It it's supposed to be a friendly face up there. This went viral for a reason. I mean, I think a lot of our listeners are attorneys or law students, they all know what that standard sure, is. And Most of the people in our newsroom know what that standard is, and many of us are journalists by trade, not attorneys. So it's just galling that he was nominated for such an important he's never He had never litigated ever before. He had never filed a motion. He had never taken a deposition. He had never done anything. And that wasn't the only... We played a little clip, but there was a lengthy exchange about all the things he'd never done. Yeah, right. And then... Didn't know what a motion in limine was. Exactly. All the things he didn't know. And there were several basic evidence standards that he apparently hadn't even heard of. Right. It was pretty embarrassing. And it's easy when you watch something like that to feel bad for the guy, right? That like like he was missing these... He didn't know the answers to these and he was getting grilled and the video went viral. Yeah, it's really cringy to watch But for the same reason why this is actually very important, even though it isn't sexy, it's really important that this guy got dragged for this because he's there for life. And we've talked on the air many times. And he has withdrawn, by the way. I don't don't know if we said that. Yeah, Yeah. so he Mm -hmm. has, he's withdrawn. He was the, the, another one. So there were three in the last few weeks that that have Mm -hmm. gone down. And it's important that that you weed out people who don't know how a courtroom works. That that those Definitely. are not the people we should be putting in for life to to have these jobs. Now, we have already mentioned uh, Donald Trump's name a couple of times on this podcast because uh, it turns out he's the president and uh, gets uh, that has a heavy nexus with legal news. Um, but one of the next thing we wanted to talk about was this like raft of litigation squarely against Trump and the administration. It's, of course, not unusual for presidents, uh, newly minted presidents who especially coming in with a change of party right. to face legal pushback when they're getting their policies in place. But we really saw the volume turned up this year, mm-hmm. almost right from the jump, right from almost exactly at Inauguration Day. The most notable of those, of course, is the ongoing legal imbroglio with the travel ban, which we've already mentioned. Oh, guys. I mean, I yeah. never pass up an opportunity to talk about immigration no. on this podcast. Right. Um, but this one's a perfect example of how the courts have really served as a, a check on what the policies of the White House have been this year. Right. So for anybody who doesn't remember, 
the original travel ban was issued all the way back in January, and it was an executive order that barred citizens from seven predominantly Muslim countries mm-hmm. from entering the U.S. Um, if the news has moved too fast and you've forgotten what a <laughs> flurry this was at the time, it's when you saw all of the footage of chaos was, at airports. It was yes. such a scene. It was. It had, you know, protesters were at all the major airports in the country. Attorneys all showed up on the scene to try to help travelers that were trapped by right. this very abrupt unveiling of this executive order. So then, of course, there were a lot of lawsuits. Yeah. And what ended up happening is that the first travel ban was um, temporarily restrained. It was halted. Several courts reached that decision. And even that was pretty dramatic. I remember like late night filings in Manhattan. We yeah. wrote a lot of stories. Brooklyn. It was in Brooklyn or, Federal Court, Yeah, right? Brooklyn, yeah. 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 So we wrote a lot of stories. Maybe Matthew Peterson um, should have paid attention. We'll learn a little bit about civil procedure. <laughs> just to, anyway, yeah. Um, so yeah, we, I mean, but we did write a lot of stories on nights and weekends about all of this as yeah. it unfolded, but it's gone on for months. So then there was a revised 2.0 version of the travel mm-hmm. ban that the White House put out, and it too was challenged in court. And it, too, was halted. So because they're not quitters, they yeah. uh, unveiled a travel ban 3.0. <laughs> say we're on, we're on 3.0, right? We are, it, is, it is tough like to keep track. <laughs> yeah, right. We're currently on 3.0. Um, it was issued in September, so yeah. it's obviously the, the most recent thing. Uh, it changed the countries that were involved yeah, a little bit. There were some tweaks <laughs> to what was included. And it has also been halted by federal district courts in Maryland and Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Those, those courts reached decisions in October. So... Uh, got appealed. The Supreme Court had to step in and it's allowed this third travel ban to take effect, but it's only lifting the blocks while the appeals process plays out. Right. Mm-hmm. So what we've had happen now is that the, both the Fourth and the Ninth Circuit are hearing cases about this travel ban, yeah. had oral arguments just this month. So we'll be talking about this one as we roll into 2018, but I think it's a good sort of showing of the volume of litigation that's happened because of some of the policies right. we've seen out of the White House. Yeah, and the the travel ban was the star of the show. It has been all year. Like you say, it's had a crazy, you know, twisty turny journey through the nation's courts. But that wasn't the only one. I thought it would be good to just quickly tick off a couple of these, uh, many of which we've talked about on the show before. Uh, this There was the suit over Trump's uh, ban on transgender people serving in the military, mm-hmm. which he announced on Twitter and uh, drew scorn from a D.C. Uh, federal judge who struck the ban down in October. This has a lot of shades of travel ban where yeah, it was unveiled yeah, very... rather quickly. And that well, and the question of whether or not the, you know there was a discriminatory purpose behind it. Sure. Trump has comments on you know on Twitter about it. Well, uh, yeah, and the judge who issued that decision like referenced the tweets, put the tweets in the in, in the ruling in right? question. Yeah. yeah, she was like the guy freaking said Kovif. Weird. <laughs> no, different, <laughs> different, different tweet. Uh, but yeah, so uh, that's that's uh, many of these. By the way, I should have said this at the top. Many of these are still playing out because the litigation process is long and it's only been a year and many of these are in some stage uh, of appeal or or ongoing. The Mm -hmm. transgender ban suit is at uh, the D.C. Circuit now under appeal. There was also um, a case brought by 19 state attorneys general challenging Trump's uh, decision to stop paying out the Obamacare subsidy. Sort of the opposite of the uh, Obamacare <laughs> lawsuits we saw over the <laughs> during the Obama administration. Well, there was that odd one that was brought by the House of Representatives that actually had to go away like this week yeah, because yeah, yeah. they're not suing the sitting president anymore because right. there's been a change in uh, policy. Anyway, in the in that AG's suit, they have sort of said that the the abrupt abandonment uh, of those payments is arbitrary and capricious. Um, They've suffered some setbacks there. Uh, The judge uh, overseeing that case has declined to issue an injunction. So that policy stands and they're still litigating that. There's also been a couple of different threads on 
Trump's possible violation of the Constitution's emoluments clause. Right. That's a, that's something we all learned about this year. I think um, I had heard of the emoluments clause before, <laughs> but maybe had forgotten a bit about it. And we all got schooled in what that was well, this year. Well, it was early on in the administration. And it was when you started to realize that, like, you know, Trump ran as an outsider and yeah. he's going to operate very differently than other presidents. Yeah. And he's not going to divest. He's not going to be transparent about, about what he still holds. And yeah, the it emol- sort of inevitably led to this. Yeah, the Emoluments Clause, for people who, like you say, it is, it, it was pretty obscure until this year. It's a passage in the Constitution that basically forbids the president from enriching himself right. privately. Uh, through uh, most notably foreign governments, which is where this has come in, but also state governments. The idea of like, if uh, you know the governor of Texas were to go and use state money to stay at a Trump hotel, sure. that might violate uh, the emoluments clause. There's a couple different uh, threads going on there. Those are both ongoing. Some There's one in Maryland court. There's one in New York court. Um, they're at various stages here. Although the, the key question is that, like you say, Bill, because it was it's never really been examined by a court, and there are questions among legal scholars as to whether a court even can. Because as I just laid out the uh, the emoluments clause to you, it it bans the president from doing things because it brings you know dishonor to the office and yeah. stuff. But these people, a lot of these people who are bringing uh, these cases, are companies who say they're hurt by you right. know their hotel owners or their restaurant owners who say you know Trump is using you know the power of the office. Or like, or the implied power of the office to, to put get, us like, at a disadvantage. It's to hard to find. It's hard to find an emoluments yeah. plaintiff. <laughs> well, right, well, the, yeah, the idea is like the clause in itself doesn't create like a class of aggrieved sure. person, right? right? And so, uh, one judge has said, you know, it's it's entirely possible that it's actually just for Congress to say whether hmm. or not the president has uh, has violated this clause. Um, we don't quite know. Like I say, that stuff is active. Um, and if you're, if you're into some weedy constitutional stuff, you'll definitely have to stay tuned. Um, but, uh, it's been a busy year, uh, for litigating, uh, against the administration. And I would imagine that we'll see that carry on, uh, in the new year. Twenty seventeen certainly wasn't hurting for news at any point. It yeah. felt sometimes uh, frenetic. Yeah, yeah. And I was hurting from the news, but <laughs> the year was not hurting for news. But in an incredibly busy year already, the story that sort of chugged slowly in the background the whole year yeah. was Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian meddling in the twenty sixteen election, and sort of the operative part whether or not the Trump campaign took part in that. So I think we've all been following this news about whether or not Russia played a role in the 2016 election. Yeah. There's all these stories about fake news on Facebook and mm-hmm. all that kind and of the stuff. The DNC hack. Emails. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, but how did we actually get to the point where we had a special counsel? The FBI sort of from, from the earliest days of 2017 was looking into whether or not there had been this meddling in the election. At some point, Trump invites then- FBI Director James Comey to the White House. The fateful Comey meeting. Right. <laughs> Comey claims that Trump said something to the effect of, you should just sort of let this go. Yeah. This, this investigation into, um, specifically into Michael Flynn. It was Flynn at that time, the former National his... Security Advisor. Correct. Mm-hmm. So the FBI does not stop doing this. Mm-hmm. And at some point in the future, I believe it was... It was uh, a few weeks later. Yeah. He, yeah. Um, it was in May, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, Trump suddenly fires James Comey, the FBI director. So this raises all sorts of, of obviously, alarms for people. You know, the, the president, generally speaking, doesn't have any contact with the with the, the FBI. Is it's sort supposed, of supposed to be siloed, to be siloed off. off. Correct. Mm-hmm. So 
that led to all sorts of calls from from Democrats that that you know this shouldn't be in the hands of anyone you know of Attorney General Sessions or anyone that could be linked to yeah. Trump. Yeah. So they appoint Robert Mueller. Robert Mueller, a longtime government lawyer, he yeah. was a former FBI director himself. He was at the big law powerhouse Wilmer Hale. Yeah, everyone knows Mueller. I mean, right. He's he's he, he's been around. He's a known stuff. commodity. Yeah. And uh, so he was tasked with investigating quote. Any links and or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the campaign of President Donald Trump and any matters that arose or may arise directly from the investigation. So that's a really broad mandate broad he mandate. was given. And it is. he had to then build an entire team. So right. what do we know about his team? He put together a pretty <laughs> a pretty powerhouse team of investigators to look into this. He brought on DOJ attorneys like Michael Dreben, who's the top criminal appellate lawyer mm-hmm. at the department. He brought on a guy named Andrew Weissman, who sort of cut his teeth during the Enron case. Yeah. Um, and he's the head of the DOJ's criminal fraud unit. Um, he brought on Wilmer Hale folks with him when he came over, guys like James Quarles and Jeannie Ree. And he brought on other big law folks like this guy from Davis Polk, uh, Greg Andres. So it's sort of a legal dream team. It's an all-star sure. team. Sure. In Indiana Jones parlance, we would say these are top men and women in this case, but top. Um, But Trump's team is also, you know, studded with with big names, too. Uh, He hired Hogan Lovell's white collar attorney with the amazing name. Ty Cobb, <laughs> related to the baseball player. Yeah, it was really weird at the first set of uh, indictment hearings, which we're going to talk about. He actually climbed into the in, into the jury box and started like punching people. It was really crazy. <laughs> Going um, back to his roots. And Trump's inner circle is also represented by by big name, big law folks. Um, people from Quinn Emanuel, from McGuire Woods, from Norton Rose, and funnily enough, from Wilmer Hale. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, you know, it's sort of this, the, both sides are really heavily lawyered up. And I already kind of teased it there. Uh, that team got to work quickly, and we've already seen some action on the, uh, on the indictment front. You they know? did. We spent the whole sort of summer with these rumors That's of right. grand juries. There, right. was, uh, there was a Dawn raid, Dawn raid on Paul Manafort, yeah. uh, Trump's former campaign manager. Yeah. His, his, a Dawn raid on his house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so, been no lack of excitement in this one. Right. So when the temperature started to drop, uh, so did a series of indictments. The first to go down was Paul Manafort, who was Trump's former campaign manager fired midway through the campaign after some of this stuff that I think that later was involved here came to light. Yeah. Um, He was indicted in October on accusations that he was paid millions by this pro-Russian political group in the Ukraine to lobby on their behalf, uh, money that he laundered through these overseas shell corporations to buy... And the the indictments listed all the crazy stuff that he bought, rugs and antiques and... uh, I remember when, when Manafort was hired... Uh, in 2016, and like all of the DC, like like in DC, it was kind of known that Manafort was like not maybe quite well, on the you level. You saw the Roger Stone documentary where yeah. if you if you were like if you had committed like some light genocide, you went and got Paul Manafort yeah. to like lobby for it you. Was, it was a, and people said that at the time, and I was like, ah, oh, it's fine, but like no one really thought Trump would win, right. and then and no one thought much, much would come of it, and then as it turned out, uh, yeah, right, an, an indictment followed. So yeah. one of Manafort's associates was also indicted in that. Um, they both pleaded not guilty, but the more important thing that dropped. In October, alongside mm-hmm. those, sort of quietly, mm-hmm. was this third case against a guy named George Papadopoulos, yeah. who was a former foreign policy advisor to the Trump campaign. He pleaded guilty to one count of lying to the FBI, a pretty minor, yeah. you know, in the big scheme of things for the things you could be indicted for. Mm-hmm. Um, 
The most important thing, the most significant thing that a lot of people read out of this was that Papadopoulos was cooperating with the with the investigation. So now yeah. you have this person on the inside mm-hmm. who right. is, you know, took a plea deal and now is working with investigators. Yeah. That same thing happened again in early December, but with a much bigger player. Yeah. We talked about former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn a little while ago. Yeah. On December 1st, he similarly pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. Yeah. Flynn's he, in. He mm. admitted to um, to the charge in part of what was also a plea agreement. Mm-hmm. And he confirmed that he's cooperating with the investigation. Yeah. So his thing was like he had he had met with uh, the Russian ambassador ahead of but just, right. just before Trump's inauguration and had basically Wade called him. Yeah, well, yes, he, yeah. he he had contacted him and he had all but said, like, don't like we're going to have some of these like heavy like Obama era Russian sanctions. Like, don't don't right. don't worry about that so right. much right now. That was the, the genesis of that. So that's a huge deal that Flynn Flynn is an inside guy. Flynn was in was was deeply involved in the campaign. He was yeah. a national security advisor early in the administration. And Trump was like hand waving away Papadopoulos. He right. said like he's nobody. And yeah. you forget the nexus here. We we were talking about James Comey before that, yeah. that you know making the investigation against Flynn go away was allegedly what led to the firing of Comey which right. led to the hiring of Mueller. Yeah. So there are a lot of interesting threads now that that Flynn is is working with the government. And, you know, if 2017 was a big year for the Mueller investigation, I have to think we're also going to be talking about it in 2018. So the last thing we want to talk about is one that has been near and dear to me this whole year and that we brought up a lot on the show. And it's about women in the law mm-hmm. trying to get their equal footing. Yep. So in September, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg gave a speech that pretty much sums up this final big story. She was answering a question about what advice she gives to women who want to be in the legal profession. And she said, no doors are closed, but despite progress, there are still difficulties in, quote, going up the ladder once you get through the door. Yeah. It's almost, and- like, she's a, it's almost like she's like paid to write stuff. very very eloquent so this really was a year where we saw women in the law being underrepresented at the highest ranks they're being paid less than men they're leaving the profession because they're so fed up with all of this and and we 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 at law 360 documented this in like an extensive fashion we did so let me just give you a few statistics that we had from our own research this year every year we do this thing we call the glass ceiling report and it's about how women are faring in the law women have made up about half of law school students for the last two decades, but they're underrepresented at all levels of the law firm. They're about 44% of non-partners and less than 20% of equity partners. Wow, yeah. And that's largely unchanged. The progress has been at the very best, you can describe it as incremental. Yeah, the glass ceiling report is always sort of a <laughs> sort of a sad moment because it hasn't gotten better from the last year. Yeah, so this year compared to last year, there was a growth of less than 1% right. for women in these higher ranks at, at firms. Um, we had an interview for one of our Glass Ceiling Report stories and mm-hmm. um, a director of the University of California, Hastings College of Law, their Center for Work-Life Law, said, it just hasn't risen substantially in decades. What we should be looking for is progress, and that's not what we're seeing. Hmm. And we saw this year, you know, frustration with this begin to bubble up into litigation against firms. Yeah, we've seen a lot of this. So, Basically, what we've seen is heat being turned up in some of these lawsuits that women have brought about pay discrimination at their mm-hmm, law firms. Mm-hmm. 
Um, some are filed late last year, but at this point, the roster of firms is basically all the firms, you guys. It's yeah. everybody. Um, Chad Bourne and Park, Winston Strawn, Steptoe and Johnson, Sedgwick. So we're really naming some well-known firms yeah. that have been facing suits. And, and what's and what are they? What like? Sort of briefly summarize what the claims are of these cases. So I think probably what is worth doing is talking about what is maybe the most prominent of these lawsuits. And that is one filed against Chadbourne and Park, a media and consumer protection partner, hit that firm with a $155 million proposed class action. So yeah. we're not talking about anything small here. Mm-hmm. The proposed class is all female partners at the firm, alleging that the male-centric culture at that law firm has led to this gender disparity in both pay and bonuses. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of a, this is a distant cousin kind of to the first story we talked about where it's like that is sort of like overly gross mistreatment of sure. women and, you know, you can see it sort of being embedded in a different sort of like more benign but a culturally like, sure. you know, unsavory way when you're talking sure. about like wages and, you know, escalation of the So a lot of these allegations, they do fall into that. It's like at what point does this – um culture of it being a man's world, this bro culture mm-hmm, caused yeah. real problems for women so in the profession. The Chadbourne case got pretty heated this year. What 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 all went down? It got ugly this year. So Chadbourne took the step this fall of alleging that the former partner who's pressing this discrimination suit breached her fiduciary duty to the firm by disparaging the firm in public. That wow. is wild. So yeah, I... she she files the suit, <laughs> alleges this this culture that's led to pay discrimination and disparity there, and then of course has talked to podcasts and uh, TV programs. She's talked a lot to Law360 reporters. Yeah. And now they're saying that that means that she's disparaged the firm to the press. And we 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 we've this point has come up every time we talk about these cases, but it's it is noteworthy that it's playing out in like the legal world. These aren't people who sure. are like naive to the way that these lawsuits, you know, these firms all have employment practices. That's what sure. I'm saying. Well, <laughs> and so, you know, we we did some reporting here at Law 360, and and one of the attorneys that we talked to who had represented um, a woman who was suing Sedgwick for similar allegations said that this move by Chadbourne wasn't about any damages they might be able to get for that alleged fiduciary breach. But it was really about making it clear to this woman and other women that if you sue for discrimination, we're going to come after sure, you. Sure, we're going to make gonna it painful. You. Well, and there was the whole thing with her getting uh, removed from the firm uh, earlier yeah. in the year. And there was emergency motions in court and stuff. So really, we will make it. We will make your life difficult if you try to vindicate yourself. Absolutely. And right. this won't be the last we're going to hear about this Chadbourne case in particular just in November, a bunch of lawyers in senior positions at the firm were ordered to hand over in discovery a bunch of their personal emails wow. that might also speak to the culture hmm. of the firm and what was going on. So they had to turn that over uh, by the 15th. So that was recent. And there's going to be a lot more to come out of this case. So this is what's going on in court. But we had the head of the ABA on the show. So talk about that. What, what What's the ABA's plan here to deal with this? Because it, it seems like from our report and from this litigation that just nothing is getting better. Well, I'm really glad you sort of set me up to talk a little bit about something positive here because I do get really bogged down as a woman on this show Mm -hmm. to constantly be talking about these issues that are so systemic and so troubling. Um, So the ABA realizes that this is a systemic problem in the profession. And Hillary Bass, who was on our show, Mm -hmm. talked about her initiative to investigate what's going on here, particularly with the idea of women leaving the legal profession. And This study that they're going to do is about how people with around 20 years of experience, but well before they're ready to retire, 
are just deciding to opt out. They're just going to leave these firms. Right. Um, so they want to do a study to see why that is exactly, if it really is about this pay disparity or other things culturally going on at law firms, and then to give some really concrete advice about what the profession can do to retain these women who should be basically at the prime of their careers. They mm -hmm. have the most expertise. They've built up relationships with clients. Firms should be wanting to keep these women in their ranks. So the ABA is going to try to help by giving some advice on that. Maybe 2018 will be, we can do this story again and it'll be a little more positive. Please, guys, let's do this story again in 2018 with some movement on this issue that I really care a lot about. So there you have it, everybody. That's our list of the five biggest legal stories of the year. The year that was. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't know if you were almost going to say best legal stories. That would be kind of a tricky thing, giving, uh, giving yeah, some of the... Yeah, especially since so many of them make me sad. Let's just <laughs> right. go with the biggest stories the, of the year. Yeah, given the timbre of some of that stuff. You know, I began the show by joking around about what a huge legal news development it was to launch the podcast. And that was, I was kind of half serious about that. But it's been a fun year. I think we've had... A uh, good time, and I want to thank you guys for yeah, making it such a fun project. Yeah, it's been great this year. I also want to make sure that we give a big shout-out to the entire Law360 newsroom. Yes. We've had so many reporters that have given us the material we're able to talk about week to week. We could not do any of this without them. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So thanks, all of you, toiling away at your computers right now while we're recording this podcast. We thank them every week, but I do want to give a special thanks to uh, the guys in the booth, Stephen Kelly. Yeah, they're the best. We all This is bad radio, the but booth. they said thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we all just turned our heads to look at our producers that keep us bad in radio. line and they just looked back at us. <laughs> so, that will wrap us up for the year. We're going to be off next week, but join us again in 2018 when we start talking about the big legal stories of that year. See you again next year, guys. I love you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it. We're wrapped. Music for the show is brought by Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you like the show, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review on iTunes. 